Please take your Bibles now and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Well known now to many of you. The passage we're going to look at this morning is being used by the elders in their annual home visitation. They've asked that I preach on it. I've been a little slow to do so because, first of all, I preached on a portion of this at a wedding not so long ago, and I didn't want to just simply repeat that message. However, it is an amazing passage. I trust you've come to see that, those of you who are memorizing it in your home. It is an amazing passage, one that I have come to deeply appreciate. Secondly, not so long ago, these verses were expounded by a visiting pastor here at Bethel. Nevertheless, I trust it can be profitable for us to focus on it once again. So let's read from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation." taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. 
But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Conflict, disharmony, strife. They have marred our relationships ever since Genesis 3. With respect to the subject of marriage and divorce, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. We all know that there are marriages that seem wonderful at the beginning. A great wedding, beautiful reception, perfect photo album, fantastic honeymoon, everything looks rosy. But then they do their first painting job together and perhaps they get into a little spat. Then they go out to buy carpet and they get into another spat. Then a few months later, they run into a financial difficulty and tempers flare and each accuses the other. And as the pressure builds and is not biblically dealt with, one day there's an explosion so that the joys of the first days of marriage evaporate and the home is filled with tension so thick you can cut it with a knife. Both of them start doing their own thing. And the unity that God wants in a marriage is seriously damaged. And one thing leads to the next until what God has joined together, man has separated. Congregation, harmony is not only vital in a marriage. It's also essential in the church. As disunity can destroy a marriage, so it can also devastate a church. Dividing believers is one of Satan's major goals. Therefore, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent. Like many churches, the congregation in Philippi suffered from various internal conflicts. There was a measure of strife which was harmful to the body. In verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1, Paul reminded them that one of the essential requirements for those who are citizens of heaven is that they must be united. For their conduct to be worthy of the gospel, the believers must live in harmony with each other. If the faith of the gospel is to be maintained, a united front is necessary. In chapter 2, Paul builds on that theme that he began in chapter 1. It's a topic that is very dear to his heart. Even though the Philippian church was faithful in many ways, They were partners in the gospel, concerned about the progress of the the gospel, concerned about the physical needs of the Apostle Paul, whom they dearly loved. Nevertheless, Paul still said in verse 2 that there was this one thing lacking, and that his joy would not be complete until the congregation was like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
You see, the church was active in their missionary zeal, in things that took place with respect to outsiders. But in the meantime, they were neglecting some very important things within their local church, namely, cultivating a spirit of harmony. And therefore, Paul patiently instructed them as to why they should be united and what steps had to be taken before they could be united. In these verses, he sets before them and before us some important principles for preserving harmony in the body. We want to consider this morning three things. The motives for unity, the maintenance of unity, and the model for achieving unity. First, the motives. The apostle mentions four of them. Have a look with me in your Bibles to verse 1. Four of them. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now, the word if, the second word in verse 1, can also be translated since. Since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort from His love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy in the Lord, believers are to be like-minded. The first thing the apostle mentions here is consolation in Christ. Consolation can also be translated encouragement in Christ. Paul was speaking about the encouragement to unity that Christians receive by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ. When a person believes and receives the gospel, he's united to Christ. And because he has a personal relationship with Christ, he also has a relationship with fellow believers who are also united with Christ. Those who are united with Christ are encouraged to live in unity by Christ, even as there is perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second, since there is comfort of love, since there is comfort of love, it is the love of Christ for us that should motivate us to love others. Our love is to be patterned after His love. Our love is to be an outpouring of His love through us as we are transformed by His grace. Paul instructed the Ephesian Christians to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself for us. Third, verse 1. Since there is fellowship of or with the Spirit... Another translation says, since there is participation in the Spirit. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit dwells in believers, He works in our hearts and minds to bring us into greater conformity to Christ and therefore to greater unity with each other. Fourth, verse 1, since there is affection and mercy. Since there is affection and mercy, Paul's appeal for unity is based upon the Christian's knowledge of God's mercy and compassion. As Christians, we know that we deserve what? Hell and eternal wrath. 
But we also know that Christ loved us and died for us. Christ has shown us great affection and mercy. How then can we fail to show affection, mercy, compassion, and sympathy to others in the body? Paul says, you have experienced Christ's tender mercy and compassion. Now you be compassionate to one another. So, these are the motives that Paul uses in his plea. He is, in effect, saying, if then you know that there is encouragement which comes from being united with Christ, comfort of his love, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, affection and mercy, as you surely must know, then respond by saying yes to my request, fulfill my joy, be like-minded. Brothers and sisters, when Paul says that his joy is not yet complete, he's not simply saying it as, as an individual. He was an apostle. And because he was an apostle, he was a special representative of Jesus Christ. His words to them were Christ's words to them. So when he says that his joy is not yet complete, it's a matter that demands attention. Paul was concerned because he knew that it was grievous in the sight of God. The Philippians needed to change their ways, not just to please their good friend, but to be obedient to God. And so we do well to evaluate ourselves. How are we doing in this matter of biblical unity? If the apostle were to have written this letter directly to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Elmer, would his joy have been complete? Have you experienced the encouragement which comes from being united with Christ? The comfort of his love, the fellowship of the Spirit, his affection and mercy. If you have, then you are called to pursue biblical like-mindedness, living with your fellow Christians in harmony and peace, compelled by the same aims and objectives. Then as we move on to verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to speak of the maintenance of unity, point number 2 the maintenance of unity. He focuses directly on some threats. He mentions three particular sins that disrupt fellowship, sins that need to be put aside in the Philippian church or any church, if, if any church is to maintain harmony. The first threat is what? Verse 3, have a look. Selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is ugly self-promotion that steps on others, if necessary, to lift oneself up. It is pride intent on advancing oneself regardless of its effect on others. Selfish ambition often builds oneself up by tearing someone else down. Have you ever done that? Built yourself up by tearing someone else down? The Bible tells us that where selfish ambition exists, you will inevitably find strife and disorder. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and Galatians 5, Paul includes selfish ambition in a list describing the works of the flesh. In the epistle of James, selfish ambition is called what? Demonic. Demonic. 
A heart that is driven by selfish ambition is devoid of heavenly wisdom. It is demonic wisdom. If we allow selfish ambition to control our lives, we will bring instability into our relationships, friendships, homes, and churches. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. The second sin mentioned here, closely related to the first, is what? Conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. A person who is motivated by conceit is a person who assertively, even arrogantly, claims to have the right opinion. He is right and he expects others to nod their head in agreement. He's inflexible. He is a person who is ambitious for his own glory and reputation. He's willing to fight to prove that he's right. He has an overinflated view of his own importance. He's wise in his own estimation. Paul says, do away with your self-imagined excellence, your self-imagined superiority, for such an attitude is not in harmony with the Christian profession. Now, the Philippians would have been well aware of the pride of the Judaizers. They prided themselves in their observance of the law. They had a high opinion of their own righteousness. They were also well aware of the Greeks who exalted themselves with respect to the wisdom of this world and the heights of their cultural attainments. The ancient Greeks did not admire humility. They thought it was a mark of weakness. So when Paul said, let nothing be done through conceit, they would have understood exactly what he was talking about. They would have understood exactly what he meant. Both the Judaizers and the Greeks were arrogant in their boasts. But all their boasting would be seen for what it really is when they are called to stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul says that is not the Christian way. This vain, erroneous thinking about oneself is precisely the opposite of living for the glory of God. So get rid, get rid of it. Get rid of the me, 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 me attitude. It's not all about you. Stop boasting and asserting your superiority. What good does it do to glory in the flesh? The psalmist says, Psalm 147, the Lord does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man, in earthly power and wisdom. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Therefore, we need to do away with any selfish ambition and empty conceit. For in the words of John Kelvin, these are two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. Then the third sin mentioned here, again related to selfish ambition and, and vain conceit, is this. Selfishly looking out for one's own interests to the neglect of the interests of others. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Those who look only to their own interests fail to appreciate those around them and are blind to their interests. 
To the Corinthian church, Paul said, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. As you know, today, so much emphasis is placed on self. My own self-worth. I am valuable. I am special. Therefore, I must watch out for myself or I will be trampled on. I deserve to be fairly treated. I deserve to be respected because I am really quite something. Advertising, billboards, television, movies, and radio promote a philosophy of self-love, self-image, and self-esteem. You have to look out for yourself, your own interests, or you just will not have a satisfying and enjoyable life. When others get in your way, you push them aside. When God gets in your way, you push Him aside. The concern of each person for himself is very deeply ingrained in our human nature. The Bible says that the unbelieving mind naturally puts himself first, his neighbor second, and God last. But the Word of God tells us that we must reverse this order. We must put God first, our neighbor second, and ourselves last. Many relationships, friendships, homes, and churches are threatened today because we have listened to this self-love philosophy that is so prevalent in our culture. Peace and unity are impossible if each person is out for himself, promoting his own cause, seeking his own advantage. How is it in our lives? Have we been influenced by the self-love philosophy of this world? If we have, then we shouldn't be surprised when we don't get along with one another in the church. So we have these three noxious weeds, which are very much alike, that must be ripped out of our lives, our hearts, our homes, and our churches. With the help of God, they must be uprooted, me, 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 me must die. We turn then to point number three, the model for unity. The unfathomable humility of Christ is the ultimate model for achieving unity. And in verses 5 to 30, Paul sets before us four illustrations of Christ-like humility that is needed to preserve a relational atmosphere in which God is pleased. I want us to have a look at these four illustrations in the opposite order that they appear in this chapter. First of all, in verses 25 to 30, we have the example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was wonderfully liberated from the bondage of self-centeredness. Epaphroditus was a member of the Philippian church. In all likelihood, he was a Gentile. In verse 25, Paul called him his brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He was a messenger sent to Paul from the Philippian church. Epaphroditus was willing to make that long, dangerous journey all the way to Rome, which was almost a 1,300-kilometer trip, not riding in comfort as we do today. Why was he willing to make that journey, children? Why was he willing to make that journey? So that he could deliver the gift raised by the Philippians and stand at Paul's side to assist him. 
Epaphroditus did not only contribute to the offering, he gave himself to help deliver the offering. And during the course of the journey, according to verse 27, he became sick and nearly died. But even that was not the greatest concern to him. His real concern is stated in verse 26b. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was concerned that they would be concerned. Their interests were on his heart and mind. And look at verse 30. Paul says, for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Not regarding his life to supply for someone else's needs. You see, he lived precisely in the spirit of verses 3 and 4. No selfish ambition or conceit. He esteemed others better than himself, and he put the interests of others ahead of his own. His life was marked by humility, and he demonstrated freedom from the bondage of self-centeredness by the way he suffered. Verse 3 says, In lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself, or in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, humility is the opposite of you owe me. Humility is the willingness to count others as more significant than ourselves, to count others as worthy of your service and encouragement. So, we have, first of all, the example of Epaphroditus. He forces us to consider, what am I willing to sacrifice for the good of my brother, my sister, my church, the people sitting next to me in the pews? What does my service to others look like? Then the second example is that of Timothy in verses 19 to 23. In verse 19, Paul says that he wants to send Timothy to them shortly. Why didn't he send someone else? Well, look at verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Why not? What's the problem? Keep reading at verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Everyone, except for Timothy, was looking out only for their own interests. When Paul was brought up for trial before the Roman emperor, all who were with him in Rome had fled. But Timothy had displayed his godly character. They had seen him in action. Go to verse 22. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. You see, like Epaphroditus, he lived in the spirit of verses 3 and 4. No selfish ambition or conceit. He esteemed others better than himself, and he put the interests of others ahead of his own. His life was marked by humility, and he demonstrated freedom from the bondage of self-centeredness by the way he served. I surely hope that the mind of Christ displayed through Timothy is not as rare here at Bethel as it was in Paul's experience. 
Verse 21, they all seek their own interests. I have no one like Timothy. Congregation, pray that the humility of Epaphroditus and Timothy would mark the relational culture here at Bethel. And then third, we have the example of Paul himself. Have a look at verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. It's the anticipation of his martyrdom that Paul is speaking about. He is saying, even though I may be martyred, I will rejoice because of the privilege of serving you. Why was Paul facing the possibility of being poured out as a drink offering? Because he looked not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He was willing to deny himself and even suffer martyrdom so that their faith would be strong. Paul loved this church and all the churches. And I think he had a special affection for this particular congregation. And he was willing to die every day to serve them and to serve the other churches. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31, it says, I die daily, I die every day. Like Epaphroditus and Timothy, he lived in the spirit of verses 3 and 4. Uprooting selfish ambition and conceit, esteeming others better than himself, and putting the interests of others ahead of his own. His life was marked by humility, and he demonstrated freedom from the bondage of self-centeredness by the way he suffered. So, we have these three amazing examples of Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul. But then fourthly, we come to the ultimate model of true humility. The one whose character was reflected through the lives of Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul. They are mere shadows in comparison. Of course, I'm referring to the, the unfathomable humility of Jesus Christ. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 5. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let your attitude, let your disposition be the same as the disposition that characterized Christ Jesus. What was that attitude? Continue reading at verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The congregation, think about that. No reputation. Paul takes us into eternity past. Christ was in the form of God and equal with God. According to John 1, he was the mighty creator of the heavens and the earth, equal with God the Father. He shared the glory of God the Father before the world was. Christ has always been God and always will be God. He had every right to remain in the position that was lawfully his. But instead, he made himself of no reputation. 
He did it himself, voluntarily. No one forced him. He, as some versions have it, emptied himself, not of his divine nature, but of all the pleasures, honors, and riches he possessed in heaven. Verse 7b says, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. From eternal, indescribable delight in the presence of his Father, he willingly descended into this realm of misery and dwelt among vile and sin-polluted people. He laid down all his legitimate entitlements. The very one before whom the angels the seraphim covered their faces. The one who held the highest seat in heaven willfully descended in the form of man to the earth he created where he knew he would be rejected and despised, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He went from the highest glory imaginable to the lowest shame imaginable beyond our comprehension and became obedient to the point of death. What kind of a death, children? What kind of a death? End of verse 8. Even the death of the cross. Death by crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. It was considered to be the death of a slave, robber, or assassin. It was abhorred by the Jews, not only because of its pain and shame, but because according to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, anyone who died in this way was considered a curse by God. Christ's death by crucifixion was therefore the ultimate in human degradation. He who was in the form of God was equal with God, who could have asked for legions of angels to protect him, humbled himself and surrendered himself to a criminal's death, the accursed death of the cross. Dear friends, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you. Your attitude should resemble that of Christ Jesus. What an incredible statement. Of course, Paul does not mean that we can copy his redemptive acts. We cannot suffer and die vicariously in the place of another. It was Christ alone who was able to satisfy the wrath of God. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can and must copy the spirit that was displayed in those acts. So please consider this. Are you willing to give up your supposed rights for the good of others in this church? Are you willing to deny yourself for the advancement of others? Young people, are you willing to give yourself and humble yourself for the good of your peers? Christ Jesus was very God the Prince of glory. But as God in the flesh, he came to earth and took the lowliest place anyone could possibly take. He put himself under the wrath and condemnation of the Father as he hung from the cross. He did it for the sake of his people, his church, his bride, for you, for me. 
The Word of God tells us that He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. But to give His life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And He took our place in His death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you. Your attitude should resemble that of Christ Jesus. Isn't that an incredible thought? But congregation, verse 9 says that he who humbled himself has now been highly exalted. Because of his suffering and death, he has been given a name which is above every name. Verse 10, have a look. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's way to exaltation is through humiliation. The expression highly exalted there in verse 9 is used only of Christ. It means super exalted. Christ's exaltation was unique. As the second Adam, he completed what the first Adam failed to do. But the Word of God teaches that believers can also be exalted. We can be exalted by trusting the cleansing blood of Jesus, the death of the cross. And how is it evident that you are cleansed and redeemed? It is verified by humility as we see in Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul, godly humility. And as we imitate his sacrifice, so we may also share his glory. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you desire a life of harmony in your homes and here in this church? Then even though it may seem impossible, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He thought of others, not himself. He came as a servant. He came to sacrifice. And through it all, God the Father was glorified. What a high standard and high calling is set before us. May it be that the Christ-like humility of Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul be displayed through each one of you. And may the ultimate model for achieving unity, the humility of Christ himself, be before you always. May you labor for him and may his humility be demonstrated through you. If you struggle, if you struggle with serving those who are hard to love, meditate on this picture of Christ. Consider what he did for sinners, what he gave up for you, and then serve one another with the strength that he provides. If you keep this picture of Christ before you, 
Satan will be frustrated. What God has joined together will remain together, and His name will be glorified as biblical unity is preserved in your homes and in this church. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life, he replied, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. Brothers and sisters, Christ is the source and model of true humility. Let this mind be in you. As we bring this to a close, I ask each of you to consider your own heart. Do you know this great and gracious Savior who put the interests of sinners above his own comforts? For Jesus to be your example, he must first be your Savior. For Jesus to be your example, he must first be your Savior. Have you acknowledged your need of him? Have you confessed that he is Lord? Have your sins been washed away through his precious blood? Have you knelt before him in humility, repentance, and love? A day is coming. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There will be no atheists or agnostics at his return. All will see him as the exalted king. The saved will worship him with a unified heart and joyful lips, but the unbelieving will enter eternal strife, disunity, contention, chaos, and misery. So I urge you all to trust the Lamb of God. He humbled himself so that one day you may be exalted. Until he comes again, let this mind be in you. Let us pray. Lord, how we pray that you will help us to apply the word to our lives. To apply that word each and every day to all areas of life. May each of us, Lord, hear this morning, may we be used by you to preserve harmony in the body. We thank you that there is encouragement which comes from being united to Christ. We thank you for the comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy. Lord, we do pray that you would take away, remove from us, the causes of disunity, the selfish ambition, that vain glory, the tendency to look only after our own interests. We thank you, Lord, for the godly examples of humility that you have given us in your word, the example of such men as Epaphroditus and Timothy and the Apostle Paul. And most of all, the example of your Son, 
Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will give to us the mind of Christ. He thought not of himself, but of others. We thank you that he is now exalted, highly exalted, and given that name which is above every name. We pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that we too may be exalted in due time. Work in our hearts, work in our lives, the truths contained in the verses we have pondered here this morning. Pray for unity, not only in the church, but in our homes and in our workplace. As we, by your grace, display something of the mind and heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.